This morning we are going to open up Hebrews chapter 1, and as we continue our way through that book, we're looking at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 14 this morning. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 3, this morning verses 4 through 14 in chapter 1. And let's pray one more time before we hear the word together this morning. Father, even as we just sung in prayer, so we say in prayer, would you show us Christ this morning? Confess that we are in need of you taking the blinders off the eyes of our hearts. We're clouded by sin, we clouded by the feebleness of our flesh, we are easily distracted in this room. We're clouded by the coldness of our own hearts. No doubt our adversary would desire to cloud our sight of your Son this morning. So we pray that you would work in our midst. Would you unveil the eyes of our hearts, unveil our Savior before us? We might see your glory in the face of Jesus today. We pray this in the strong name of Christ, the one and only Savior of men. Amen. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 4 through 14, this is the holy, inerrant, sufficient Word of God. Having become as much superior to angels as the name He has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And... You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your ears will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool beneath your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Though the grass withers and the flower fades, The Word of God is forever. 
Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, as we said last week, as we go through this book of Hebrews, we're going to see as we go through this book that the writer is going to show over and over that Jesus is greater than, that He is more than, that He is superior to. And He will go through a host of things. He is greater than Moses. He is greater than Joshua. He is greater than the priests of the Levitical order. He is greater than the Old Covenant. And then this morning, what we will see, He is greater than angels. You will remember, those of you who were here last week, that the writer of Hebrews is writing to Jewish Christians. These are Jews who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they've been persecuted for it. They have lost possessions. They have lost their belongings. And they see on the horizon that there is even greater persecution to come. No doubt, they see that some of them are going to face martyrdom. Uh, Nero has risen to the throne, and he is emperor, and it is pretty clear that Nero is going to persecute Christians, and they see this on the horizon. And so what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he is writing to them to encourage them not to abandon Christ. Persevere. Don't turn back to what you were once before, but persevere in clinging to Christ. He begins with reminding them that Jesus is superior to angels, and he does this by quoting from seven different Old Testament texts. So he's going back to the Old Testament Scriptures, and he's going to quote from seven texts, seven texts where God the Father speaks of God the Son. And when God the Father speaks of God the Son, you and I should sit up in our seats. We want to know what God the Father has to say about God the Son. Four points we're going to grab from this text this morning as we look at it. Jesus is superior to angels in person. Jesus is superior to angels in position. Jesus is superior to angels in permanence. And Jesus is superior to angels in power. So He is superior to angels in person, position, permanence, and then lastly, in power. But before we look at these different points this morning from the text, the question is, why angels? Why does the writer of Hebrews begin with angels? That's not exactly where we would begin if we were going to talk about Jesus as superior to. We might think of all kinds of people that we would compare Him to, different things in the Old Testament we would compare Him to, but not angels. Why angels? Well, there are different theories on that. I hold to what most scholars would believe, that it is because in the first century Jewish mindset, there was a very high respect and honor that was given to angels, and rightfully so. If you think back over Old Testament history, angels are often there when there is a high moment in Old Testament history. So when the exodus occurs, there are angels. When there is the giving of the law, there are angels. And in fact, the Hebrew writer will highlight this fact and Chapter 2, verse 2, he says, angels declared the Old Testament law. Stephen will say the exact same thing in Acts 7 before he is being martyred. And when he is giving that sermon in Acts 7, he will say that the law was delivered by angels. And in a Jewish mind, it is the law. 
It's the law that set them apart from all the nations of the world. It was in the giving of the law that God showed His favor to these people. And it was through angels that God gave the law. And so, the writer is going to address their view of angels. He doesn't want these Jewish Christians in their fear returning back to the Old Covenant. It is the gospel is to be treasured. It's to be kept. What Jesus has given them is much more superior to that which the angels conveyed to them. Keep clinging to Jesus. Now before we get to our four points, let's just be very clear. Be clear. Angels exist. They exist. They're real. The word angels means messengers. Angels are just messengers from God. They are spiritual in nature. They will often take the form of human beings when they appear before humans. And yet they never appear as artists often have them in paintings or in different pieces of art. They are never feminine. And they are never chubby babies. They're masculine And they are terrifying. Almost every single time someone sees them in the Scriptures, they are afraid. And we see them in the Bible. They are delivering the message of God. They are fighting against Satan and his legion of fallen demons. They will interpret God's will for men. For something we can't see, according to the Scriptures, they are everywhere. And there are myriads of angels. Tons of angels. So much so that they are called a heavenly host. There is an army of angels. And God Himself will often be called the Lord of hosts. The God of the angel army. Because there are so many. It isn't a mistake that angels appear at significant times in the life of Christ. If you think again about the Old Testament, they are often there at significant times and the Old Testament Scriptures, so it's no mistake that they're there in the life of Christ. Joseph is told in a vision, in a dream, three different times by angels that he's going to have a son. You remember that when Jesus is born, there are angels that are out in the field with the shepherds that are praising God. You remember that Jesus, when He is in the temptation in the wilderness, He is ministered to by angels. When He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, when He faces the great onslaught of suffering, angels minister to Him. And in the resurrection accounts, you'll remember that when the women go to the tomb, it is angels that announce He is not here. He is risen. If we don't believe in angels then we don't believe in the testimony of the Bible. There's a whole realm that you and I don't see. There's much more occurring around you and I than we can know and understand. No doubt, in this room right now, there are angels. And no doubt, there is spiritual warfare going on in this room right now. As you have adversaries that desire you to be distracted, angels are fighting for the good of your soul. In fact, the writer of Hebrews will say, in chapter 13, it will say that 
Sometimes when you and I show hospitality that we, quote, entertain angels unaware. Could be somebody's hand you shook this morning was an angel. That's what the writer of Hebrews was saying. Angels are real. They are incredible. They're not to be disregarded as fairy tales, but neither are they to be worshipped. Christ is superior to angels. How is he superior? Well, first, he's superior in person, and that's clear by the name he has inherited. He is the Son. Our passage begins with two quotations. It begins with a quotation from Psalm 2 and a quotation from 2 Samuel 7. Two absolutely key Old Testament texts. Psalm 2, that great messianic psalm that spoke of the king that would dash all of his enemies before him. And then 2 Samuel 7, that great Davidic covenant text where God promises that a son of David shall reign upon the throne forever. This is where the writer of Hebrews begins. Psalm 2, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. He has inherited the name of son. And God never calls an angel's son. But Jesus Christ is the eternal son of the Father. This is the name that he has inherited. Now the question is, when did he inherit this name? That's a fair question. Some have argued that he inherited this name of son at the incarnation. We are told in Luke 1, when the angel Gabriel appears before Mary, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Others will say, no, no, it wasn't at the Incarnation. It was rather at His baptism because did not the Father say from heaven at His baptism, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That's where He was announced as the Son. That's where it was declared that He was the Son. Others will say, no, it wasn't at His baptism. It was actually on that day when He was on the Mount of Transfiguration. And there He is shining His glory before the disciples. And in that glory cloud, God the Father says over Him, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. But still others will rightfully point out, no, it's in His resurrection. Because the Apostle Paul says as much in Romans chapter 1, verse 4, he says that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead. This is all true. He inherits the name of Son. He's declared the name Son of each of these different given moments in redemptive history. But I'd argue... And he does not inherit this title at any of these moments. These declarations are simply declaring what is already true. He is not the Son because He was resurrected. Death could not hold Him. Why? Because He is the Son. It declares it. Look, when He is raised from the grave, it declares for all of the universe to see this One, Jesus the Christ, is the very Son of God. It declares it. But He raises from the grave because He already is the Son. He's eternally the Son. He's God of God, light of light, very God of very God. No angel is eternally the Son of God. 
The writer then quotes from 2 Samuel 7. It's a passage with a double fulfillment. First Solomon, who would build the temple, and then of Christ, the Son of God, this great promise to David that he would have a son of his that reigns upon the throne forever and ever. And this was not true of Solomon. It was not true of any son of David. But it's true of Jesus, the Christ, the second person of the triune Godhead, the Son of God, who is the Son of the Father. No angel is eternally the Son. Christ is superior in person. Second, the writer shows He is superior in position. And we know that because the Son is to be worshipped, even by angels. This third quote here in Verse 6 is from Deuteronomy 32-43 where angels are called to worship Him. Interestingly, this is not in the Hebrew Old Testament. If you look at the Hebrew Old Testament, there is no call to angels there. But in the Greek Old Testament, in the Septuagint, when it's translated into Greek, it has the word angels there. And the New Testament writer here in Hebrews, as he is inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes that it should be interpreted as angels. That angels are to worship Him. It is always the inferior which worships the superior. But especially key here is that none are to be worshipped but God. No matter how great a being may be, it is only God that's to be worshipped. And here the Son is told to be worshipped by angels. Angels are to worship Him. Why? Because He is very God of very God. They're to give Him His due. To summarize, one old commentator said, Christ's place is on the throne. The angels' place is before it. In fact, angels here in verse 7 are called ministers. That he points out the Messiah, Jesus, in verses 8-9 through is the Holy One. He's the Holy One. He is the Anointed One. He is the Messiah. Verse 9, He is anointed. In the Old Testament, in the ancient world, if a king was beginning his reign, he would be anointed with oil to set him apart that he is indeed now reigning. And Jesus here is called the Anointed One. How was he anointed? Well, it wasn't that moment that the woman cried tears over his feet or when that costly nard was broken and poured out over his head. That's not what the writer of Hebrews is speaking about here. What he is speaking about here is that moment that Jesus goes to John the Baptist. And John the Baptist baptizes him and, and pours out that water upon his head. And as he receives that baptism, we are told that a spirit, the spirit, descending like a dove, fell upon him. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit. And thus he began his public ministry. No angel is anointed with the Holy Spirit. He is different. He is the Holy One. And He is to be worshipped. The angels are not, and they recognize this. In Revelation, in chapter 22, it's this wonderful passage where John sees an angel. And as he sees an angel, as is often the, the case, he, he falls down prostrate before this angel in Revelation 22. And he begins to worship the angel. 
And the angel says to John there, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. And then he commands him, he says, worship God. It could not be more clear. Angels do not deserve worship. They recognize this. They say you must worship God. But the same John in the book of Revelation, in the beginning of the book, when he sees the Lord Jesus Christ face to face, he bows down before Him and begins to worship Him. And Jesus does not discourage Him. But accepts the worship. And instead just comforts Him. Fear not. Jesus never turns away worship. Angels always turn away worship. He is superior in position to angels. Third, the Son is superior in permanence to angels. That is, He is everlasting. He has no beginning. And He has no end. The writer points this out by quoting in verse 10 from Psalm 102. The earth and the heavens will wear out like a garment. Will wear out like a garment. My wife has uh, kindly informed me multiple times over the years of 24 years of marriage. She has said over and over, Jason, it is not a virtue to still hold on to clothes from high school. Uh, I tell her I think it is. Uh, Listen, every style comes back eventually around and I'm prepared is my argument. Uh, And so I keep them forever. Uh, But the reality is I don't keep them forever. Because eventually they wear out. And I throw them out. Now my wife thinks that happens after a couple of years. I think it happens after a couple of decades. But eventually they get thrown out. The garment wears out. The psalmist is saying the earth and the heavens, they wear out. And eventually they're thrown out. Environmentalists are absolutely right. The world is dying. In fact, the universe is dying. This is not to be glib and we're not to be uncareful with creation that the Lord has given to us. We're to be good stewards of it. But all this is wearing out. It's wearing out like a garment. This is true of God's creation, let alone our creation. Think of everything that you and I will pride ourselves in and things that we will think, oh, this for sure is is a lasting thing. And it all wears out. It just fades. The Babylonian hanging gardens were the envy of the entire world. You can't see them today. You know why? Because they don't exist. They wore out. The Colossus was one of the great ancient wonders of the world. You can't see it today. It's gone. It wore out. All the things that we would create with our hands, all of the reputations, all the things that we would build, all the things that we would give glory and honor to, 
God's creation is wearing out. Your creations are wearing out. But what I want you to especially see is the context of Psalm 102. When the psalmist is speaking about all of creation wearing out like a garment, he begins in verse 1 thinking about his own mortality. It isn't just the universe that wears out. He says in Psalm 102, verse 1, he says, For my days pass away like smoke. He says in verse 11, My days are like an evening shadow. I wither away like grass. But that leads him to the contrast. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. It isn't just the world that you and I live in that is fading. We who live in the world are fading. It's not just the creation of your hands that is disappearing. Your hands are disappearing. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying, why would you trust in any of those things? You trust in the one who is everlasting. He alone is permanent. And he is telling these Jewish Christians, you cannot and you must not turn back to the Old Covenant. You see, it promised to them if they turned back to the Old Covenant, then there would at least be little to no persecution. Because no one's persecuting the Jews at this time. But what he is reassuring them is he's telling them, look, Hold on to Christ. Cling to the One who grants eternal stability. Cling to the One who is an everlasting hope. Don't cling back to that thing that fades. Verse 8, he quoted from Psalm 45, and it's simply, simply astounding to me. He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is the Father addressing the Son. God says to God, your throne is forever and ever. And this had to be wonderfully encouraging to Jewish Christians who were watching their entire world turned upside down. Everything was changing. And they were on the wrong side of the chain. The comfort it is for Christians in every age. Some of you have been so anxious about our world's changing these past handful of years. So nervous. Things change. Culture changes. Even the institutional church can retreat. But the one we trust in doesn't change. It's a sound refuge. Keep clinging to Him. Thousands of years when navigators at sea would be going across an ocean or something large like the Mediterranean Sea, they would, would find their way by looking at Polaris, the North Star. That's how they knew where they were to go, because it's a constant. They'd have a rough day at sea during the day, and they'd be tossed by winds, and the sea would be billowing and rolling, and they get 
take it off course, and what would they do at night? They would look for Polaris. They would use that as their constant. And so it's to be for the Christian. We orient ourselves to Christ. And when things get a little rough, the sea gets a little rough, and we find ourselves drifting a bit, little bit, we then reorient ourselves to Christ. When things get a little turbulent, we reorient ourselves to Christ. He's the constant. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is superior and permanent. Finally, Christ is superior in power. Is superior in power. The writer of Hebrews closes out this passage by quoting from Psalm 110, that great messianic text from the Old Testament, the most quoted Old Testament text in the New Testament. It's a prophecy from the mouth of David regarding the Christ. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It is God, it is Yahweh saying to the Messiah, sit at my right hand. This is not a secondary position. This is not a position of weakness. This is Christ preeminent. This is the right hand of God and it represents power. This is the seat of authority, of sovereign power and authority. And He sits there and he's not leisurely sitting there that's not what he is doing this is not an idle king he is making all of his enemies a footstool beneath his feet every single one by his sovereign power there's none that can rival that and here's the great kicker for you, Christian. All our enemies are His enemies. All our enemies are His enemies. And every single one of them are being made a footstool beneath His feet. That means that every disease, that means death, that means demons, that means Satan, that means depression and anxiety and discouragement, all laid beneath His feet. All. All. In the ancient world, when a king was conquered by another sovereign, it was, it was common practice to take that conquered king and you lead him before the conquering king and he was to lay prostrate before that conquering king and that conquering king then would put his feet on top of the conquered king's neck and head. It's complete victory. And it is complete defeat. All power. It is this sovereign Christ, this sovereign Christ who said to the church, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Is this sovereign Christ who said, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
unmatched power. What an encouragement to these Jewish Christians as they're facing persecution. We stated last week, we just filled out a little more of this book of Hebrews. It's best to consider it a sermon. It's a, it's a written sermon is what it is. The writer of Hebrews will make this point in, in chapter 13. He will say at the close of the book, he ends the letter with, this is my word of exhortation. That phrase, my word of exhortation, is actually the same phrase that's used in Acts 13 when Paul is in the synagogue with Barnabas and they will read the word of God in the synagogue. And then the, the Jewish leader in the synagogue will say to Paul and Barnabas, do any of you have a word of exhortation for us? And Paul will get up and he will preach. This writer of Hebrews, he's preaching is what he's doing. For 13 chapters, you thought my sermons were long, 13 chapters he's preaching to them in written form. I want you to know what, what he's pressing home with them. He's not pressing home with them that he hopes that they will get delivered from persecution. I'm sure he wished that and hoped for that and maybe even prayed for that, but that's not what he's addressing. What he is doing in this letter is that he is giving them courage to stand on in the midst of their persecution. Look to Christ. Continue to cling to Christ. Few of us are as courageous as we think we are. And none of us are as courageous as we should be in Christ. In the early church was being persecuted in Acts 4. They prayed, and they prayed this way. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. They, they prayed for courage. Paul, the Apostle Paul of all people, will write to the church in Ephesus soliciting their prayers and he will say, pray also for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the Gospel. He needed their prayers. The writer of Hebrews here is reminding these Jewish Christians that they can be strong. They can be strong because they are with Christ who is greater than even angels. They are safe. So they can be courageous for Christ. If he was speaking to us today, he would say, oh, you could be courageous in the classroom for Christ. You could be courageous in speaking to your neighbors about Christ. You could be courageous in standing for truth in your family for Christ. John Patton, the missionary to cannibals in the South Sea Islands of the New Hebrides, though he had lost a child, he had lost his wife, he had lost all of the missionaries that he went to the field with, he would say over and over, he would boast, and he would boast this way, and he would say that he was invulnerable beneath his invisible shield. He'd say, I am invulnerable beneath Christ's invisible shield. Christ, who has all power, is with him. 
These angels, those angels that men are prone to adore, they get this. Verse 14, I want you to see this. Angels are sent out to serve. And wait for it. Did you catch it? They're sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. They are sent out for us. God, in the person of Christ, in the sovereign power, sends out ministering angels. They are everywhere to serve us. Do you remember that account from the life of Elisha where the Syrian army has come down and they have surrounded the city that he is in, the city of Dothan, and do you remember that he wakes up and his servant is quite bothered and, and fearful and the entire world as he sees it has come out to kill them and to take the city and Elisha stands there with a servant and he tells the servant not to be fearful. Do you remember what he says to him? He says, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are against us. Elisha's servant is still gripped with fear and so Elisha prays to the Lord and says, would you open my servant's eyes, O Lord? And when his eyes are opened, he sees that the mountain is filled, filled with angels who are with us are more than those who are against us. John Knox once said, one with God is a majority. With God. God's with you. It's all power. I was reminded this week by Kent Hughes in studying this passage of an account I'd read years ago from the life of John Patton, that minister in the South Seas. He, he went there to minister to cannibals. And when he got there with his wife, they had built a home, and there was a night that the they were in their home at night and they heard all kinds of noise in the village. And then they heard all the villagers coming out and the villagers surrounded their hut. And John Patton knew and his wife knew they were there to kill them and no doubt have them for dessert that night. And so they fell on their knees and they just began praying. And he said they spent the whole night in prayer and they prayed through the night and as they were praying, they could hear in between their words that they were saying, they would hear different cries from the villagers and they thought at any moment these villagers are going to come through the door and they're going to slay them, probably eat them. He said, but they never came through the door. Eventually the morning came and they went out that morning and they were shocked to see that all of those villagers had disappeared. It was a year later that the chief of that village came to saving faith and there was a night that John Patton was sitting with him around the fire and 
he reminded this chief of that year before, and he said, my wife and I were so very scared that night. Do you remember that night? We thought you had come to kill us. And the chief said, we did come to kill you. John Patton asked the question why they didn't kill him, and the chief replied with a question of his own. He said, who were all those men who were with you? Patton replied, there were no men with us. It were just my wife and myself. And the chief then protested. And he said, there were hundreds of tall men in shining garments with drawn swords circling about your house so we could not attack you. There's testimony after testimony of this in church history. He sends out His ministering spirits by His power to help you, dear Christian. You have no clue what you've been kept from. No clue. You have no clue what you've been saved to. You'd be amazed. You just know a slight portion whole world around us. He's sovereign over it too. So you are to keep clinging to this Christ. The world that you live in is going to change. Sometimes it's going to look uglier than it does at other times. Sometimes it's going to look nicer than it does at other times. It's going to constantly be changing. What's the answer? You keep clinging to Christ. You keep orienting and reorienting yourself to Christ. Because He is superior in every way, in person, in position, in permanence, and in power. Why would we look to anything or anyone else? Why? And why would we fear anyone or anything else? Keep clinging to Christ. Let's pray. Lord our God, we are thankful. Thankful that you have given us such a great Savior in Christ Jesus. One who is even superior to angels. Forgive us, for those of us in Christ who have been gripped by fear in different ways. Have wandered off course in the midst of the turbulent day. You reorient us and once again orient us to our Savior. He who is more than sufficient. Who is far superior to everything and anyone else. We pray for those of us in this room. Find ourselves trusting in things that are fading away. Things that lack the superiority of such a great Savior. That you would even now, in this moment, give us a view of Christ. We might behold Him in His glory, be clutched by Him and cling to Him all the days of our life, and on into eternity. 
What greater gift could we receive? It's your praise, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even now that we pray. In Christ's name, amen.